Kiemchenko, how are you? Very good, Carlo. How are you? Doing great, man. Excited for today's conversation. As always, lots going on in Web3. Mm-hmm. Caught, a, caught a little bit of your uh, time on Rug Radio's GM Web3 this morning, talking about uh, this issue with Blur. That was fascinating. That's wild. I was learning that a lot this morning. We were supposed to talk about the stable coins, but we ran over. But wow, they really put creators in a tough spot, didn't they? Yeah, the uh, the whole <clears throat> the whole notion of this, as Ira very well stated on that show this morning, was to reward creators, to reward artists, and NFTs were the gateway to accomplishing that in a way that uh, that that traditional physical art was was not able to do. And now that we have this essential uh, war between trading platforms where they're you know, trying to undercut each other to maintain market hold, it seems to be that those creator royalties are on the chopping block. And, and you're right, it's putting projects in a tough spot. I can't, I mean, Coke and Pepsi wouldn't, wouldn't do this. And like, these are just such nascent companies where like, Looks rare seems to have the biggest opportunity here to do something. I don't know. I just I, I feel like a race to the bottom isn't good for anybody. Well, I liked your idea of a trade guild unifying the projects under some kind of a unified stance. Here is is a fascinating. Well, just from a negotiation point of view, they've they've dis- divided and conquered, right? Like they've they've put every project in its own silo and box. But if but they're all the. The projects all love each other and support each other in a, in a great way. So maybe there is something there. Fascinating spin. All right, let's jump into it. <clears throat> Welcome, everyone, to Lex Line, brought to you with our friends at Rug Radio, hosted by yours truly, Carlo Jenko, where we talk about the latest developments in Web3, blockchain, NFT, and crypto law. As always, nothing we say should be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, you should consult a lawyer. You should do it privately. You shouldn't do it on a recorded Twitter space because we do record these spaces. And if you come up and speak, we will rebroadcast these spaces. So just know that going in. Uh, If you wouldn't mind retweeting, because this is a great conversation we're going to have today. Our guest today is Mark Beckman. Mark, I've pinned your uh, announcement. People are free to check your bio out on Twitter. But you are a lawyer. You are a professor at NYU. You are an accomplished author. You consult with respect to the New York State Bar Association's Digital Asset Task Force. And you published a very interesting piece, which I enjoyed reading and which prompted me to reach out to you to come in and talk today about the very disruptive possibilities that Web3 uh, presents to the legal profession so I am delighted to have you on today, and I'd love if you could take a moment, just introduce yourself, and then I want to jump into the conversation of where we see Web3 and the legal profession going at this, at this very critical point in the development of this technology. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Carlo. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Great, great. Thanks, everyone, for having me today. It's you know, truly very exciting. Hi to everyone that I know. Matt, how are you? Um, Just to be clear, Carlo, to to the audience. So as I mentioned to you when we met each other, I'm not a 
practicing attorney, although I you know, went to law school and was admitted to the bar in New York, New Jersey and Washington, D.C., my primary business is owning and operating DMA United, which is an award-winning advertising agency. And we exist um, on top of what I call a polycultural platform, which extends from style and design into fashion, art, music, sports, and entertainment. And our clients range, it's pretty eclectic mix. It ranges from Sony Music and Warner Brothers Entertainment. Um, you know, we've represented sports leagues like the NBA and Major League Baseball. We do a lot of pro-social work. Um, in fact, we've used Web3 technology to raise monies to support um, the Trevor Project surrounding Pride, Save the, Tr Save the Chimps surrounding Earth Day. Um, so, you know, for sure, my legal background and my legal knowledge comes into play regularly because we're building out contracts for our clients across, you know, commercial endorsements and licensing, co-branding, direct to retail and beyond on a daily basis. But when I speak with the group today, I'm speaking really through the lens of the owner of an advertising agency that got very involved in Web3 before the pandemic. To date, we've built seven NFT marketplaces, including one recently for New York University named Art Lab. And um, beyond the seven NFT marketplaces, our agency has now onboarded more than, I'd say, at least 60 individuals and brands um, into into the Web3 and Metaverse space. With NYU, I've been teaching a class, an MBA class at Stern for five years now, focused on luxury marketing. And after, shortly after my book, um, my book became a best-selling book surrounding NFTs, blockchain, and digital artwork. And shortly after that, the school came to me and said, look, we're interested in getting involved in the Metaverse and Web3. And they appointed me senior fellow for the metaverse and we're building out a metaverse collaborative on that vertical and in fact i brought the new york state bar association into that platform so there's an amazing strategic alliance happening right now between new york university not just the school of law it's cr across the entire university and the um, new york state bar association so it's a pleasure working on the um, task force with regards to digital assets and cryptocurrency. And I'm also teaching a class now, in addition to my um, Stern class, I teach another graduate level class um, that's only focused on Web3 and the metaverse. It's an amazing, amazing class. So, um, you know, very, very active, almost 100% of my time now focuses in on this area. And I got to tell you that, you know, in working with several publicly traded companies and launching NFTs and, and other levels of blockchain related businesses for these clients, I find that their in-house counsel, I found that their in-house counsel was, you know, completely devoid of knowledge as to how this area works, um, this area of law. So it really caught my attention. I'll leave the company nameless just out of respect to them. But I remember we were, um, we had a time sensitive launch that was approaching and the lawyers wouldn't sign off on our contract because 
they didn't have a chance to read the smart contract. And this is literally a publicly traded company. And, you know, finally, my chief of staff, who's also an attorney, you know, got so frustrated. She's like, look, you're not going to ever read the smart contract because it's coding. Like, and we realized like a, a big, you know, a big red flag went up. It's just the industry is still not up to speed. The legal industry is still not up to speed as it relates to so many different nuances um, in Web3 and the metaverse. And then beyond that, obviously, um, I was inspired to write that article for uh, the journal, which, you know, I truly believe. I think that the legal practice, the, the practice of law, the business of law can be entirely disrupted by leveraging blockchain technology. And I think there's also other areas that will come to life through the metaverse that are off chain to disrupt the, the business of law. And then I also believe that there's tremendous opportunities, opportunity for specialists, for, for lawyers to specialize in so many of these different areas. I recently gave a speech to about 350 attorneys and judges in trusts and estates here in Midtown Manhattan at the Hilton Ballroom. And during that exercise, I showed these lawyers how they could innovate and update their practices it's really needed to help clients that are collecting cryptocurrency, that are collecting NFTs and other digital assets, and to use tools to protect those assets if, God forbid, in the event that one of their client passes away or, you know, in scenarios where there's um, multiple parties owning a particular item through fractionalized ownership, there are no tools in place right now that really, you know, expand beyond the primitive wallet. Um, that protect future generations. So that's a lengthy, Carlo, I'm sorry if I was too uh, wordy, but I got a lot going on and I'm pretty passionate about the um, intersection of Web3 and the law. No, no, and that's clear. And I can, I can, I think I can say that you don't have time to practice law with all the things you've got going on. You definitely got red-pilled into this and this is a big pivot from your origins in healthcare law, as I, as I learned from looking at your bio, and you've jumped in with both feet into Web3 technology and you see the utility and the value and the potential for the law profession. So that, that prompts my first question, because lawyers are very slow to innovate. The legal profession generally is very slow to catch on to trends. I'm very fortunate uh, to say that I caught this early as well and saw the potential of it and jumped in with both feet and haven't looked back. And it's kind of been my mission and part of the reason why I enjoy doing this show with Jenko is to, to create a community of Web3 lawyers and to help onboard uh, aspiring lawyers who want to jump into this. So my first question for you is, when you speak to these rooms of judges and lawyers, how, how is this received? Are they skeptical? Is it the typical crypto skepticism that sort of crosses over into, into Web3 legal practice? Or are you seeing open-minded uh, uh, colleagues across the board who are interested in this. Carlo, I could tell you, I've given now, since I've been involved with the New York State Bar Association, I've uh, given three speeches and a series of fireside discussions. Um, and the audience has ranged from like 50 to 350. And across the board, there's been a lot of enthusiasm. Of course, there are skeptics, right? It's like anything else. But there's, there's a lot of enthusiasm, and it's not just the younger generation 
Um, it's the older generation too. Um, in fact, I've received several calls from that trusts and estates um, section um, recently from uh, individuals that have been in practice for over 30, 35 years asking for guidance and support. So um, there's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of curiosity. Uh, they're just really not sure what the entry point is, what they should be focused on. Um, you know, it, it's kind of uh, confusing to people because they're not sure if they can generate new meaningful income for their practices uh, by specializing in a certain area of law, or should they be, you know, should the focal point be uh, more on the client side where their clients now need new services because they're, you know, in the Web3 space? Yeah, I think that is definitely the dilemma for any lawyer who's interested in, in making this pivot because this is a new nascent technology and we're still sort of all figuring this out. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this show, Mark, is that we have the luxury here of being able to unpack the legal developments that are happening in this space in real time. We're debating them with lawyers in the space and we're sort of even front running the press a lot of times when it comes to what is going on because we're just so quick in our, in our group chats and in this conversation we have here on these Twitter spaces to unpack these concepts. So I'm glad to see that there is at least in the, in the, in the, in the forums you're speaking with a receptiveness to this, but it then begs the question, are, are we positioned for the growth and the exponential possibilities here? Do we have enough lawyers who are competent, knowledgeable, and capable to absorb the work that's coming? Because we know, we see what's going on in Congress with regulation. We see what's going on with the SEC with aggressive enforcement action. We see what's going on in the realm of IP with the Rothschild verdict we just got. Are there enough lawyers in your estimation and, and kind of getting your boots on the ground view of this, do you think there are enough lawyers to manage this? My, my opinion is no, not yet, for sure. And I also don't think that there are enough attorneys that are breaking out into areas that they're interested in specializing, right? So there's a lot of great application for Web3 beyond cryptocurrency that could make our society function better. One area, for example, that I'm particularly excited about is seeing enhanced filing systems, um, perhaps for land, um, you know, for, for land and automotive titles and deeds um, in real time. I think in many ways, the county clerk office is antiquated, prone to human error, um, becomes um, in certain cases because of human error becomes more costly than you know, what's really needed. And um, there's great opportunity for the uh, legal community to jump into specialized areas such as real estate, um, such as trusts and estates um, to leverage new technology to enhance their practices. Uh, but I don't think that the um, understanding is quite there yet. So there's a lot of curiosity. People seem to be enthusiastic about it when I go to these events and I speak and show them different areas that they should be focused on. Um, we have some great people, Carlo, that work with us at the New York State Bar Association, lawyers here in New York City in particular that are very involved in the art side, the IP side of art as well. And 
they're all in and, and engaging at a, a very high level, applying legal principles surrounding IP that are, you know, statutory law and case law related that make a lot of sense for Web3 and, and bringing those traditions over. But I, I'm excited to see the day where um, hopefully Web3 and, and um, the metaverse related legal principles are expanded and, and you know, fully engaged by, by the profession. You know, the, the State Bar of New York uh, was very, very forward thinking in collaborating and creating this task force. And the thing that's, that's interesting to me about what's happening in New York is that, number one, they're leading the nation in this, and that's, that's commendable. And number two, I, I, it opens my mind to the possibility of replicating this across major bar associations across the country, because I think that's a critical component of onboarding. You know, we see CLEs are available out there. We see the ABAs offering stuff. But I think at the grassroots level, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, do you see what you and the State Bar in New York have done as something that could be replicated? And are you interested in, in expanding the reach of, of this movement to other bar associations? For, for sure, 100%. In fact, uh, the president, Sherry Levin Wallach, has been traveling internationally as well as domestically and meeting with her counterparts at the state level um, and at the international level to um, show them the work that we're doing. And in fact, we have a um, conference that will be happening at the end of April. Um, I think it's a two-day conference planned here in New York at NYU as part of the Metaverse Collaborative platform that Sherry and other members of our team, including Matt, who's on this call, are building out. We're going to have you know, a series of workshops and discussions. And a lot of the um, individuals that Sherry has been meeting across our country and, frankly, all over the world will be joining us. And I would encourage for everyone on this call to take a look at that and participate. I don't know if we've posted the information yet, but you could certainly reach out to me. It would be great to have everybody show up. If anybody's interested in um, even hosting some kind of a fireside discussion or a breakout work session, let me know. And I'm happy to bring that to the attention of Sherry and the rest of our task force. Um, but it would be phenomenal to have everyone present in April and, and to see the work we're doing. It's really important. You know, it's always the challenge with lawyers. Uh, you know this from practicing time constraints and demands. It's, it's part of the reason why, you know, we don't necessarily draw a huge crowd for these live shows, but we do get folks who like to listen back on the replay, which is why we're making these available on Spotify and iTunes, because the conversation's important, but lawyers are very, very much uh, boxed in with respect to their schedules, and they don't always have the time uh, in their day, especially, to jump into these meetings, CLEs, and conferences so are there creative ways that the State Bar is thinking about to bringing this information to lawyers in a way that they can consume it at their, at their, at their leisure? Yeah, so that's a good question. We've, to be honest, in my opinion, we've fallen short a little bit as it relates to um, capturing all of this content, but uh, we're catching up to ourselves. So the last event that we had, we actually did offer um, access vis-a-vis uh, -vis live streaming. And um, I think that was really well received. Um, I know that there were more people that were joining us via live stream than 
physically in the venue at NYU. And I'm sure that the next um, event in April will be available both live stream and and then uh, to catch afterwards at, you know, on demand. Uh, Excellent. Well. I want to invite anyone who's interested in coming up to talk as well and ask you some questions. And I definitely want to reserve some time for Jenko to visit with you. But one of the things we've been debating uh, extensively is the the nature of what's happening here with enforcement actions and the sort of vacuum we're seeing as far as meaningful legislation coming out of Congress in this space is threatening to drive innovation overseas and is threatening to stifle the continued growth of this technology. And I personally am of the opinion that it's critically important that we get this right or we're going to lose a tremendous strategic advantage here. What can lawyers do from your perspective, being an educator and being involved in the state bars initiative, what can lawyers in Web3 do to try to turn the tide on this? Carlo, I'm so happy that you asked that question because it really connects with, connects with me on an emotional level as well as an intellectual level. Um, first, the, re- the concept of regulation is important. What I've noticed, I don't know if it's just a sign of the times, but what I've noticed is anytime that I've interacted with the legal community at these events and all, over the past several months, it seems like everybody just jumps to the concept of regulate, regulate, regulate. And I think there are going to be benefits to um, uh, regulation coming through both the state and federal level. However, um, I think we need to get regulation right. And I don't think that that's happening right now. So for example, do we need to put proper comprehensive regulation in place that's created, by the way, through legislation, not through um, agencies that are unelected, to protect a investor that is interacting with some of these um, uh, you know, digital assets uh, for investment purposes, yes. There needs to be a layer of protection. And actually, in fact, I think that when that regulation comes through, there will be more confidence in the marketplace. And I think that it will um, grow as it relates to users and interaction with uh, blockchain. However, I think what we're seeing right now from the executive branch, honestly, I think it's, it, it starts with, with Biden, um, is... Um, uh, the, you, they're basically leveraging, in my opinion, the banking industry to choke out the cryptocurrency community. And I think this could have a terrible chilling effect on commerce, on entrepreneurs and growth. And I do think it will um, it can result actually in hurting the retail consumers, too, because if it ends up pushing business overseas into markets that aren't regulated as efficiently or as well, or don't have the experience as, you know, both the United States government as well as state level um, organizations. I think that could end up backfiring and hurting that consumer investor too. So in my opinion, although um, I believe that we should give the marketplace a chance to work itself out um, without being 
overly regulated. I think once we get regulation in place, it should come through the right process, legislation with experts involved, not just politicians. This is a really specialized area right now. And I think with that, positive things could happen. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big thing. The other part that I'd like to mention is the mere essence of smart contracts allows for us to create almost a, um, a, a, a like laws and govern and um, like government and laws where we can protect ourselves. And I think that we should consider using smart contracts to create uh, regulation on our own as a community to self-regulate. Uh, essentially, because we're the experts as it relates to the technology. So if we could create some advanced mechanisms that where the smart contract can, you know, self-regulate the community, and if the community is built with people that share the same values, the same mission, the same vision, that could be a very, very modern and effective way to regulate, maybe in connection with the federal and state level um, legislation, but that could in many ways be more effective um, and probably more efficient too. That's actually a fascinating uh, take on that. And I think, I think what I take away from what you're saying is that it doesn't seem like the blockchain itself can be legislated out of existence, but the capital formation and the, the, the pipeline through banking and financial institutions is in jeopardy right now and that would be the lifeline that would fuel innovation. And that's what could potentially be driving talent and uh, entrepreneurship outside of our borders, which is just not good on many levels. Is, is that a fair way to, to sort of TLDR that? For sure. I think right now you're seeing some um, governmental, like non-elected governmental agencies like you know, the, the, the DOJ and the SEC, the OCC and the F, FDIC coming in and using the banking system to really choke the um, cryptocurrency currency entities. And it's going to have it's, it's already having a, a very chilling effect on these businesses. If you look at what's happened over the past two months since the FTX um, debacle, frankly, um, these these regulars have come in, these, these agencies have come in, and um, rather than prescribing the right way to do things, they're really um, using the power of fiat currency, the power of the dollar, the fiat, the, the power of the banking system to hurt the cryptocurrency businesses. So um, I fear right now that our community is not being loud enough and we're not representing um, uh, a position here we're not strong enough yet. We're not representing a position here to um, positively impact uh, what these, uh, you know, th these types of um, uh, entities are doing uh, in, in this type of roundabout way. In certain ways, it kind of reminds me how, you know, what we're reading when, when Elon Musk released the Twitter files and, and you're seeing that to a certain extent, the government agencies were influencing what information would be released and, and, you know, certain First Amendment rights. But now these government agencies like the Department of Justice and the SEC are using the banking industry to restrict the cryptocurrency area, when in fact it should be our legislators that are creating those laws.
and that vacuum is concerning. Mike, you jumped up to speak. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this before I hand the mic to Jenko. Thanks, Carlo. Uh, hi, Mark. Nice to meet you. Uh, I, I think the point that you just made is a very important point and a very scary point uh, because we are starting to see news articles, and they're based upon rumors, but that regulators really do want to start killing crypto by you know, cutting it off at the roots where it intersects with the financial system. And there's a couple things that I, I think are really interesting about that. One is we haven't, as a, as a community, left regulators a lot of ways to regulate crypto other than through the banking system, because at least there, they, they have the benefit of KYC, so they can track who's doing what on chain and track it back to an actual individual, because at the end of the day, they can't enforce their regulations without finding the person in real life who's interacting on chain. So uh, you know, one thing that the Web3 community, I think, could be doing is, uh, and, and you, you, know, you hint at this with the idea of using the smart contracts, but we need to provide regulators um, paths other than going through the banking system. Uh, another thing, two other things that occurred to me. I agree. Uh, the idea that, um, that, that going through the banking system will cause uh, innovation to move abroad is partially true, but you know, the, the banking system is international and you know, for other countries' financial systems to use SWIFT and all of, all of those important uh, payment rails uh, that they rely on, they also have to uh, use KYC. And I, I imagine that you know, Treasury or I guess it's the Fed, you know, coordinates with all of those uh, other countries. And then the, the third point, and, and this is related, is it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the regulators that have the most ability to enforce right now really are uh, the ones that can act through the banking system, even more so than the SEC. And, you know, we see it acting by enforcement actions. Those are just the people that they can get their hands on. You know, they don't have an effective way to enact regulation that they can then enforce against, uh, you know, pseudonymous actors that might be issuing assets. So I don't know where all of that goes, but I, I, I think it's, it's really keen of you to hone in on the fact that the, the, the banking system is the place where, where right now the rubber's meeting the road. Yeah, but Mike, why can't we just legislate? You, why can't we create legislation? I mean, that's what that's what that branch of government exists. For. We, we can. But then how how did those laws get enforced when, you know, the the the, the actors are pseudonymous and, you know, you can't go you can't go tell the Bitcoin network to do something different because it's it's decentralized. So, Mike, I. It's interesting when I speak to um, groups now, just in general, like I kind of break out three verticals surrounding this area. The first is like these crypto maximalists, right? Those people that are operating in the pseudonymous way, they're always going to. The technology will always provide for that, um, which, by the way, in some cases isn't a horrible thing. And I'll explain that to you in a second. I think it's worth noting, particularly with this audience. The second area is where I think the federal and state legislation could really be effective and should come into play, which is Web3. Think about like the centralized, decentralized world where 
human nature is such that we're lazy. I remember actually my, my real property professor, Professor Silverman said, they're slothful pigs. Like, but we, but he wasn't saying that in a bad way. Like we want the convenience of, you know, a, a Coinbase or an OpenSea. We want to have the convenience of, you know, what, what Gmail gives us right now. So that spot, that Web3, the centralized, decentralized world, that's where legislators could come in and really do great to protect that, you know, the young investor or the inexperienced investor, et cetera. The third piece of it, which isn't so important for today's dialogue, although is relevant, is the metaverse. So like off-chain events that are now triggering on-chain events. Um, just going back to where I started um, in the first scenario, that crypto maximalist thing. So a lot of what I do, Mike, with the advertising agency is I'm dealing with developers all over the world, including developers that are in places that don't that have very restricted governments in China, for example. And it's interesting what um, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology provide people in these marketplaces like China with the overarching, very inspirational theme when I meet these people is freedom. For now, it gives them a way to transfer files that give them access to content, films, music, stories, writing that they can't access because of governmental restrictions on their own. Um, it also allows for them to express themselves in ways that they couldn't otherwise. Um, it also allows for them, I remember one developer early on told me he could now create what he wants and get paid for it however he likes. So. There's a whole other part of the world, and I know today's conversation is focused on the United States, and we don't really see these issues of freedom um, when, you know, looking through the vantage point. Here I am in New York City talking about freedom, right? It's not really that big of an issue, but other places throughout the world are really using Web3 um, technology to express themselves and to have access to um, content, information, data, and transferring money in ways that give individuals. Did I cut off? Oh, the magic of Twitter spaces. Are you there, Mark? Am I, can you hear me? Yes, now we can. Uh, we, you rugged a little bit <laughs> just on the tail end of sorry. that comment. So I, I don't know where you lost me, but the point is that in that crypto maximalist zone where pseudonymous um, uh, individuals will exist, it does provide them on an international level with a new type of freedom that they can't experience within their own within their own world, which is really... You know, there are probably some civil rights lawyers that are on this, you know, in this space right now. It's a compelling concept, guys. It's important. So uh, I actually I actually am a civil rights lawyer uh, and have been uh, doing 1983 work for 20 years. Um, so so I, I, I love the, oh, point, wow. the, the freedom point. It's, it's a it's a vital point. Um, it, 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 it reminds me of uh, your Woody Guthrie, uh, who, you know, sort of spread rebellion and in, in, uh, in, in the cause of freedom through music uh, used to have a, a bumper sticker on his uh, or, or, or I guess the bumper stickers after what he did but he had a sign on his guitar that said this machine kills fascists and just by allowing the spread of ideas through his music you know that overturned um, you know the forces that were opposed to freedom and so in a way it, coming back to you know, the United States interest in promoting decentralized technology, it is a way for us to spread our ideals to parts of the world that, you know, are 
uh, totalitarian, parts of the world that don't respect human rights, because we genuinely believe that when people can organize themselves and can get access to information in ways that governments can't stop, that that ultimately is a good thing. But like, anyway. and, and Mike, honestly, so so is capitalism, right? So if you think about the strength of capitalism, entrepreneurship, and a free marketplace here in the United States, and what that does to you know help American citizens in so many ways. Uh, this is why I'm, I, I state like we got to get the legislation right, because if you look at some of the going back to the conversation surrounding banking, if you look at the banking industry now, like, uh, you know, Silvergate, which I know was, you know, one of the leaders, if not the leader, as it relates to banking and cryptocurrency. Um, I think that a year ago, their stock was north of one hundred and fifty dollars. And I think now it's below twelve dollars. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, fears and messages that are coming through these um, agencies, right? So th think about how that, that impacts people's um, livelihood and access right here in America to, you know, various um, elements as far as the like, personal growth and wealth and, and everything else that comes along with it. So if you start to look at like how these governmental agencies have been clamping down vis-a-vis -vis the banking industry on the crypto world over the past 60 days, um, you have to start to wonder, like, what kind of a chilling effect will that have across all of the development, entrepreneurship, and um, job growth for, you know, infrastructural reasons and beyond? Um, almost 100% of our projects that we launch include a fiat currency credit card option for payment. When I launched NARS Cosmetics, for example, we did their Genesis collection worldwide. It was a huge success. And 100% of the um, uh, NFTs that were purchased were purchased using a credit card for, with fiat currency. But um, I think the overarching fear that these governmental agencies are, are putting into the cryptocurrency um, entrepreneurship and, and um, new business communities, have, it's already having a chilling effect on commerce and capitalism. And I think it, if we don't start to, to look at this in, in, a, in a responsible way quickly and get our you know, elected leaders to start legislating, I, I really think it's going to hurt the industry. We have, to, we have to lead by example on this front. And there just seems to be a lack of cohesive leadership. And the world is watching. And there are strategic advantages that can be gained from our uh, failure to get this right. So it is critically important, and I think it's, it's definitely something that's germane to, to what's going on right now, especially with the uptick in regulate, regulatory enforcement we're seeing. We have another mic in the house. Before I bring Mike up, we generally go an hour mark, so I want to hand it to Jenko to, uh, to visit with you briefly, and then I'm going to bring you up next, Mike, okay? Thanks for joining, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, very interesting points already. I just want to dive into kind of your hat as an as a a rep for brands or 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 dma united Great. um what what who what type of clients do you interface with as a as a preempt as a as a as an initial question so i can follow up with saying how are they seeing the metaverse we talked about your conversations with attorneys how about traditional brands folks who've been successful 
in the world before this Web3 came about? How, what are they cautious about? What are they trying to accomplish? What conversations are you having? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Ray. I appreciate you bringing that. Um, we are an agency that really specializes in the fashion lifestyle categories, right? We're sexy, so fashion, art, music, sports, and entertainment. Our clients range from Karl Lagerfeld and Sony Music to Pepsi, Warner Brothers Entertainment, and Nelson Mandela. Um, what happens regularly is a, and we're, we see this literally every single day, brands will come in, they, they read a story um, about, you know, great success story. We can reach a younger audience. We can stay relevant and cool. We can even generate some new revenue through a digital asset, but where do we start? And that's when we pull back and we start to analyze along that spectrum that I just laid out for you really would be um, those three verticals, right? Like typically the first vertical of the crypto maximalist, that's not really relevant to these brands. But when you start to look at Web3 and off-chain experiences in the metaverse, that's where it comes, where these brands could really come to life. And what we're doing is we're making recommendations and focusing on opportunity for our clients that allow for them to accomplish a lot. So for example, right now, there are a lot of headwinds um, in the marketplace, not just macroeconomic factors, but like even next week, it's kind of interesting to bring this together. Uh, next week, there's this amazing case, Gonzalez versus Google, that can have a chilling effect on um, recommended algorithm advertising. So restricting third-party data, um, lacking intelligent advertising for brands. So what we're doing is we're, we're like using the technology to provide solutions against um, these types of situ situations. Paid media, paid search is more expensive than ever before, cutting, you know, really impacting and negatively impacting our client's ability to find profit, to capture a bigger profit margin. So for example, we could create a concert in the metaverse, right? On a gaming platform like Roblox or Fortnite and um, create an on-chain experience where the brand can, if uh, they sell a ticket, the ticket could serve as a POOP. And that POOP then can allow for the participants to go into the physical store, right? I'm going to visit the Gucci store on Fifth Avenue to buy the limited edition physical merchandise that comes out of that digital event. So these are ways, and then, and then build that NFT into a broader loyalty program that gives access to first-party data, Thus, you know, starting to beat these new third-party data regulations and restrictions so we could get access to first-party data, we could capture um, an increased value on each sale and beyond. So there are a lot of great, great ways to leverage this technology um, to build brand awareness, to reach a younger audience, to um, create a digital asset that's tradable, that could grow loyalty programs, for example, is an area that I'm really bullish about, particularly in the fashion world. I'm sure that everyone on this call um, would agree that there's not one department store, multi-brand retailer or, or a uni retailer that you go to because they have a great loyalty program. Now with the advent of this technology, we can buy an NFT that gives us access to unique experiences, unique services, product collaborations, new seasonal launches, and a digital asset that grows in value over time that I could trade my points afterwards with. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a pretty exciting time from a marketing perspective for us. That's, 
That's a great, complete answer. It raises a couple of points that I'm curious what your response would be to. Um, we talk, Ellie is one of the great lawyers in Web3 in the audience, and she, she talks about how um, mass adoption is, is kind of when folks won't even know they're interacting with an NFT, and that kind of takes the form of loyalty programs. And you're talking about, I'm trying to think of a softer word, but circumventing some of the, you know, the, the data restrictions for first party data. It, is, is, is this whole thing, like you talked about um, the economics outside of the U.S. for people to store wealth and do transactions when the government is cracking down on them or, or, or being very restrictive. That's a use case that gets me excited. Is the second best use case just like better marketing tools for big corporations? I think that um, is that a fair no, way to put it. I'm not trying it, to be it, hostile, but yeah, in in, in no particular order. I think it's important for major corporations to look at leveraging the technology beyond just the financial aspect of it, right? Like again, take exa for example the loyalty program in fashion. I could, as a brand, you could come into like we'll stay on Gucci for a second. You could buy a physical jacket at Gucci. And with that, a digital twin shows up in your wallet. I can then access your wallet if you're part of my loyalty program and see what products you enjoy. Um, and then highlight, we could, we, could, we could start to create personalized experiences based on that first party data to highlight moments in time that would be important to you. We're launching this new black t-shirt. I know you love black t-shirts. You should buy it before everybody else. It's cold winter time, and we see that you haven't purchased a winter coat in a long time. It's time to buy a new winter coat. Here's what we have for you. Here's a new promotion over the holiday period, blah, 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 these types of elements. The technology is really superior. And then if you think about the perceived value of a digital asset as it relates to Gen Z and Gen Alpha, it's a very different proposition than you know, for someone like me, who's, you know, 52 years old and my, my parents, my 14 year old son, almost everything he's doing from social media to gaming and beyond is digital. So the idea of collecting digital assets with value on chain and frankly, even off chain is more important to that next generation as well. So I wouldn't, um, you know, although I, I, you know, personally, I have feelings about the importance of cryptocurrency and the financial aspects of blockchain. Um, I think the both off-chain elements of the metaverse coupled with the on-chain elements of Web3 are super compelling and in many ways more important for society than uh, just the financial aspects. Like, don't you think voting, going back to law, don't you think voting at some point is going to all be on chain? And that really doesn't have oh, anything to do with economics, right? I, I think that there's a privacy element to the core of Web3 that would run counter to some of the uses you bring up. And we'll just see how kind of the market reacts. I, I think that um, those are fascinating uses. I just I'd love to see Web3 kind of bifurcate or, or, or delineate into separate silos where um, yeah, there is this corporate loyalty program, but wouldn't you say that they would use kind of a flow or a less decentralized chain for, for things like of that nature or, or, or yeah. no? Yeah, I do. You I do. think so. I, 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 okay. I, 
don't think the um, uh, so there so are privacy like different issues. things happening here. At Correct. Same time. Yeah. Correct. I think that there are privacy issues that are going to become increasingly important as people realize that, you know, Apple and Google are, you know, essentially raping us right, every day with data. Like here I am in New York City. Most people don't realize you could be sitting in a cafe and a bus passes and it's capturing your data from the street, right, with specificity. When people start to understand that more, they'll start embracing Web3 more, right? It's my data and you can't just keep trading on it. That, that's mine. Um, there are a lot of different issues that come into play as it relates to the benefits of Web3, certainly beyond just the financial aspect of it. I like it. I like to see, I think, proper targeting, targeted um, marketing and getting product, products to the right people creates efficiencies. I just fear that that was a lot of the downfall of, of the, the last wave of the Internet with social media, where, where it became hyper kind of. Um... Even social media, I think, is important to look at. So, for example... Um, right now, it, even where we are in Twitter currently, um, it's a generalized cesspool of information, right? Like we could all leave each other and, and our conversation, like as a community, we all have um, uh, a common interest and shared values as it relates to Web3 and blockchain technology. Um, what's interesting is, though, after we leave, we might not all want to see um, sports and fashion and culinary and education and politics. And we might not even uh, align with a lot of the, the values that those people are, are uh, putting out there. So we could, we could create in Web3 no, new social media experiences with our community. You could take your ID, your personal data off of the chain and just put it into um, specialized social media communities that are important to you. And this is where the concept of using a smart contract to govern um, specific communities is really interesting to self-govern. So, you know, everyone in this community, I would bet, has uh, similar interests as it relates to wanting to do the right thing, uh, being entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, wanting to leverage this new technology, like shared goals, shared mission, shared core values. We could all um, probably create a smart contract that would govern a part of our relationship. Like, this is how we'll vote. This is how we're going to create um, a new business together. And we'll, and we'll live by the way that smart contract is established. Um, social media right now is so generalized that it just, it, anytime you look at what's trending on Twitter, it's always like hate filled, right? If you want to like get Ajita in the morning, look, at, look to see what's trending on, on Twitter. But the future of social media would allow for these specialized experiences with people that share like, you know, same values and same interests and, you know, give a sense of community. And that will happen in a decentralized format. It's going to take time, of course, but it will happen where you could just then lift your data out of Twitter, out of Facebook, out of TikTok, out of Instagram, and just join my friends, you know, at Rug Radio at this time and maybe even create some smart contracts to govern something that we're going to work on and develop together. And you see that all as under a token gated ecosystem? Um, I don't I don't know if it's uh, necessarily uh, so much about. Um, 
restriction. I think it's more about attracting the like-minded individuals. Um, I very much, I'm very much um, uh, excited about the concept of a network state being developed. Um, if you look at the United Nations and uh, several of the uh, governments that come together and, and are recognized by the United Nations, it's interesting to look at like why they're set up, common currency, the amount of people they have, geography, et cetera. I actually think that blockchain technology can allow for people to work together um, in ways that could be more efficient than you know, our layered bureaucratic governments right now and could push uh, certain aspects of mankind forward um, based upon you know, shared values. And I do think at some point, not in the immediate future, but at some point, if you look at it, the nations that the nation states that are part of the United Nations, they're, they're, it's not that big of a hurdle to get accepted into the UN when you start to look at like how much, what their GDP is, et cetera. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit out there. I realize this part of the conversation of going really far out there, but I, I believe there's something to the concept of a network state. No, uniting us is, is a beautiful is a beautiful goal to reach. Mike, I promised we'd bring you up. This is your opportunity. Welcome to LexLine, Mike. Question for Mark? Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, Mark, nice to meet you again. I don't know if you remember me. We met at the New York State Bar annual meeting. Um, I, I'm very passionate about this space, and so I love this conversation that we're having about you know U.S. legislation and what that looks like. So I think a really interesting point has been made about the enforcement powers and how the enforcement agencies are kind of squeezing the uh, the industry and pushing them out of um, the U.S. into a more international space. And so as we're talking about what it looks like in order to have proper implementation of legislation and what that looks like, I think one of the important things to do, and I think the New York State Bar Association is doing this well, is um, providing spaces for people to engage with. And, you know, not just people who are already lawyers, but, you know, first generation law students and, and, and people who are going to be first generation lawyers as well. Because one thing that I think this has the ability to do is and, and this is just blockchain in general i think blockchain has the ability to promote economic mobility social mobility and just mobility throughout and in in in, in order to do so we have to bring more of these people to the conversation um so i was thinking like you know what areas or like what kind of things do you think we can do to continue trying to recruit people into this space yeah i i, I think that's a good question um people are you know if you're not a lawyer, people are you know, typically afraid of law and lawyers. And I think a really good starting point is to look at real life use cases, right? So, you know, going back to the concept of money and crypto, I have, you know, right now my agency, we went, we have about 25, 30 people working for us and we've become decentralized during this time period. And we're, you know, I have people all over the globe and, you know, I certainly have, um, you know, it takes time sometimes to uh, disperse monies electronically for payment because of the way that the um, uh, the SWIFT system works effectively. But if you could show what the benefits are to um, like immediate payment through the use of cryptocurrency and then bring people in through that use case into your practice, I think that will be tremendous. There are so many real life reasons as to why individuals and companies should hire lawyers that are experts in blockchain and crypto immediately, 
immediately. But I think you have to enter through the use case, not through the law. So just to follow up on that idea, what I see to be a, a sort of friction in, in the use cases is that we're, we're kind of in the space that we're in right now in which the government's going to pick and choose who they decide to enforce against. And they're going to pick ideal cases for themselves to build a program. So do you think there could be or, or should there be a better solution than just use cases? Well, that's only if you look at, Mike, where the government is regulating right now. Like if you just focus on what's going on with regards to cryptocurrency specifically, uh, securities specifically. But um, as I highlighted, there are so many use cases like staying in law again that that isn't a, a crypto related or payment system. Like, I don't know. You guys tell me, do you think that um, the way that um, uh items collected in a criminal investigation and programmed into a web two computer is beneficial and better as it relates to chain of custody than perhaps filing everything on chain. Carlo, I, I think you have a background in criminal law, don't you? Like, do you, Absolutely. Right? Yeah, so no, that's a, that's a fascinating debate because the chain of custody is obviously something that can be corrupted. It can be destroyed. It can be lost. It can be tampered with. So the tamper-resistant nature of a blockchain is something that I think could be explored. We're already seeing that with respect to how certain municipalities are handling records. So I can't see it being too far from the pale to incorporate that same tamper-resistant, but also completely secure because you can't have that evidence being available to the public to look at on-chain so I think you've got to balance the, the transparency of the blockchain with the tamper-resistant notions that, or, or the tamper-resistant capabilities of a blockchain. And that's where I think we're still very, very early because it's going to be a tough sell to get people to change very entrenched habits. Yep. And then think about also, Mike, uh, again, use cases that aren't crypto-organized but could affect everybody. What about record-keeping in the... Um, you know, uh, medical industries. Uh, I have a friend of mine recently, her sister-in-law had a aneurysm while she was traveling internationally. And it literally took them days and days to get the records from one doctor in the United States to the other doctor in the, in the country that she was traveling in, um, where if all of your records are stored on chain in real time, everything could be transferred. Um, yeah, but you could say and- that about a database. Like if there was a, a universal medical record database that everyone subscribed to, it would be there's no need for a blockchain, right? Except for one thing though, Jenko. Tell that me. universal that universal database goes through an intermediary and that intermediary can be hacked and we've seen that happen. That was the so same security case. And, and exactly no one sort of, okay. because now you've got Definitely. ransomware going on where medical records are literally being hijacked in exchange for on chain payment. So if you can secure them on chain in a way that's tamper proof and not subject to an intermediary, that's an interesting use case. Very interesting. I appreciate the conversation, Mark uh, uh, and Mike and others who joined. Carlo, really, really. Yeah, please. Yeah, Mark. uh, No, absolutely. Mark, I want to give you a chance to say some closing remarks. Uh, This has been a delightful conversation. I think it's one of many that we'll be having. So I'm very, very 
uh, happy to make a connection with you, Mark, and, and I'm very much behind what you're doing. And I think we have uh, I think we have very similar goals for what we want to see happen to this space. So is there anything you'd like to say before we close out for today? No, it's truly a pleasure. I appreciate everyone's time and interest today. I hope I shared some insight, not just opinion. And um, feel free to reach out to me if anybody wants to reconnect for any reason. Um, you know, I welcome it. Thank Excellent. You, and maybe one day we can do a round two with Sherry from the State Bar and, and do a deep dive into the uh, New York State Bar's uh, digital task force. I think I'd love to do that conversation as well in the future if we can make that happen, Mark. Carlo, I spoke with her about it already. She's interested. I'm, she's just getting back to me with some availability. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Yep. So to be continued, to everyone who joined us today, as always, thank you. We know you're busy, especially the lawyers in the house who have very, very tight schedules. So we always are honored and appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us. You can re-listen this on Twitter. You can check it out on Spotify, on Apple iTunes as well after the fact. Mark, a pleasure. Jenko, as always, love doing this with you. And we will be back at it again tomorrow. We have a guest tomorrow, Jenko? A cliffhanger. Okay. Possibly Jenko's <laughs> rugged, but I think we might have a guest tomorrow. But we'll post about that either this afternoon or tomorrow morning. As always, thank you for joining us here on Rug Radio. Lex Line, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone.